Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, delegates, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Believe in Spirits and Sports History. I'm extremely excited about the launch of this show as I've been conceptualizing and working on it for quite some time just to work out the kinks and really get it to where I want it to be. I'm extremely excited that it's going to be hosted on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one network for professionals, as well as hosted on SportsAldente.com. You know it, your recipe for L.A. sports. Um, It's going to be a fun, fun show, a little shorter, something that... um, you can just listen to uh, quick and easy, but hopefully you learn something from it. But most importantly, hopefully you just enjoy it. My favorite aspect of sports is the stories behind them. Um, every game, every team, every player has a story, whether it be where they came from or just the work they put in to get to the highest level. And so I'm going to explore a lot of these stories. And what I've done and began doing is, is finding an event in sports history, um, big or small, but just an event that really happened, a true event, and then I have written these somewhat fictional stories that kind of lead up to these events, obviously using the real player or the real team, um, real names, but kind of creating a little bit of a fiction side to it, what went into whether it was a, a day leading up to this game or a week leading up to this event or 16 years leading up to their professional debut, something like that, where I've just kind of built this fun storyline that – has factual context within and then ends with the actual factual event so it's a sports mystery mystery if you will kind of unraveling throughout the show and then you at the end can have that aha moment like oh it's about this said player this said team this coach yada yada and on top of that i think one of my favorite things and many out there listening one of their favorite things while watching sports is having a drink whether that be a nice cold beer uh, a nice smooth bourbon or, you know, a touch of vodka in their soda, anything like that. And so we are going to, from these stories, we're going to look at certain um, drinks that were featured kind of in that area. So whether you, you know, if it's a Southern or a, an event happening in Kentucky, obviously a lot of bourbon distilleries will be strong. If it's over uh, in Britain, we can look at gin or certain different brown ales. Um, if it's in, you know, the southern region we can look at tequilas and stuff of that nature so we're going to look at different beverages that are kind of featured where the sport event happened and we're going to we're going to explore those distilleries we're going to go through the history of them a little bit um so you can learn a lot about these drinks and then hopefully the idea is that you'll pour yourself one pour yourself a glass and have a drink with me drink with the don while i am telling this story to make it a little more enjoyable and it's like a virtual um bar scene where we can just sit talk sports and have a drink. So that's the idea of the show I'm excited about. It's going to be a weekly show with a different drink featured, different story featured. We'll have some master distillers on to actually talk about these drinks. Um, I'll be having guests on to read stories. I'm also having certain guys come and and, um, contribute as well and write their own stories, or at least we're going to collaborate on some. going to be a lot of fun. So um, thank you so much for tuning in to Believe in Spirits and Sports History. Couldn't be more thrilled that you're here. And without further ado... Pour yourself a drink, and let's get on with episode one. One quick note I do want to mention. The drink that we'll be featuring in this first episode is not necessarily 
synonymous with the location of the story I will be telling. But I think it was a good launching point to kind of show you uh, what we're trying to do with that portion of the show, as well as just a good history lesson on a very important alcohol to me. The Jim Beam story dates back over 200 years and seven generations. The Boehm family arrived to the New World, or the 13 colonies, in 1740. 48 years later, the family had settled in what is now Kentucky. They Americanized their German surname to Beam and began the family business, growing corn. During the early 1700s, German, Scotch, and Irish settlers were making rye whiskey, but then came the birth of bourbon. The U.S. government began offering incentives to move west and grow corn, hence why Jacob Beam and his family settled in the heart of Kentucky. Jacob Beam sold his first barrel of old Jake Beam's sour mash in 1795, just three years after Kentucky became an official state. The distillery, known as Old Tub, quickly became one of the most popular among whiskey drinkers. The distillery saw expansion and growth over the next hundred or so years and through the Industrial Revolution. But then Prohibition hit and production halted. James Beauregard Beam was in charge of the distillery before and after Prohibition. He rebuilt the distillery in 1933 in Clermont, Kentucky, where it still is today. The James B. Beam Distilling Company was founded in 1935, and from then on, the bourbon would be called Jim Beam Bourbon, in honor of James Beauregard Beam, who brought the bourbon back from the ashes. The Beam family is known by many as the first family of bourbon. So what is the difference between whiskey and bourbon? We get this question a lot. All bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. So there is actually a set of standards and government regulations from what is what. So what defines bourbon? First of all, it must be made in the United States. Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, which Jim Beam is, must be made in Kentucky. It must be a product from a fermented mash of 51% corn at least. The corn is what gives bourbon a sweeter flavor than other whiskeys. Picture eating corn on the cob on a cool fall night. There is that gentle sweetness in every bite. That is what you get in every sip of bourbon. It must be distilled at no more than 160 proof. Each time an alcohol is distilled, it creates a higher proof or higher amount of alcohol. During this process, anything that isn't alcohol is removed from the bourbon. So the higher the proof, the less flavor that remains. So having a maximum proof protects the integrity of the bourbon, keeping it bold and flavorful. It must be stored at no more than 125 proof in new charred oak barrels. Jim Beam is aged in new level 4 char American white oak barrels. The flavors that enrich the bourbon during the aging process are hints of vanilla and caramel. Other whiskeys, scotches, wines, and even beers have been known to use these exact barrels after Jim Beam's single use to also pull from these rich flavors of the barrel. It must be aged a minimum of two years. In general, the longer the aging process, the smoother the bourbon. But the longer the aging process, the more bourbon that evaporates the heavens to please the angels. This is why longer age whiskey costs more. The taste is smoother, but the distillery loses a large amount of the bourbon and therefore bottles less. In Kentucky, whiskey ages much faster than whiskey aging in a more temperate climate. Interesting enough, a couple years aging in Kentucky has been estimated to equal twice that long in a place like Scotland. Jim Beam ages their bourbon at least twice as long as the law requires. It must be free from additives. No flavoring, such as caramel or anything other than water, can be added to the natural process. 
in order to be considered bourbon. Well, there you have it. Your first bourbon history lesson about, ironically, one of the first bourbons in American history. So pour yourself a glass of Jim Beam, and let's get on to our sports mystery. There's something special about a crisp fall day in the Northeast. The crackle of leaves under pandering footsteps, the hushed chill of a cool breeze whipping through the busy streets, the warm embrace of a homemade bowl of chili. But most importantly, the sound of bones gnashing, helmets clashing, and the inauspicious grunts of grown men fighting for mere inches of advancement. A true symbol of a fall day, the arrival of football. This is none more true than in the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Grant woke up and got ready for the day like it was any other day in his normal life, but it was far from it. What he didn't know is that this day would change the sports landscape, not just for the year, but forever. To Grant, today was game day. This meant that after he finished with the morning ritual of getting ready, you know, using the restroom, cleaning oneself, etc., he would prepare himself a breakfast fit for a champion, because that is the mindset that Grant had. So after begrudgingly exiting the comfort of his twin bed, Grant sulked to the washroom, where he completed all morning tasks, retreated to his bedroom, where he clothed himself with the attire that he needed to go into battle, and then made his way into the kitchen to prepare a meal that would give him the strength needed for the conquest. Italian sausage with grilled peppers and onions, a side of eggs, and an ice-cold pint of Iron City beer. Once the meal had been consumed, Grant made his way out the door and headed toward the park. On his way, Grant passed the local market, where Ned Thompson was out sweeping his already clean entryway. Good day, Grant, Ned said with a wry grin. Go get him today, then bring the boys by after if you win. A pound of chipped ham for each of you on the house. And if we lose, Grant chuckled in response, then I'll have aprons waiting and you can all make sure this damned entryway stays clean and swept, Ned yelled conveniently. Grant smiled and waved with approval as he continued down the street. He made his way to where the three rivers met and the sun shone through and glistened on the man-made cathedral. The wonder was called East Liberty Park, the playground where boys became men. Grant made his way past the groundskeepers, who tended to the grass with such dedication that Michelangelo would view it in cohesion with the Sistine Chapel. One groundsman shouted out to Grant, What do you think? Is it ready for something extraordinary? Grant pondered the question, as he didn't quite know how to answer. It looks great as usual, just like every other game day, Grant responded sheepishly. But this wasn't like every other game. This wasn't like every other day. Today, history would be made. The remaining groundskeeper offered plenty of waves and smiles as Grant trekked towards the depths of the stadium where the locker rooms were housed. After leaving the sun-kissed field and walking down the concrete corridor into the players-only area, Grant was greeted by the club's brass, all the bigwigs, people that you see maybe once a year, if ever, and if you do see them, it usually isn't because they want to shower you with compliments or show you the appreciation that you deserve. Grant, John, the general manager, bellowed, Step to my office, please. Grant's heart sank. The pride and excitement that he had felt throughout the day was suddenly ripped from his soul. His footsteps felt heavy as he marched into John's office. The door closed with a loud clang as the curtain shook against the glass plane. Grant sank into the chair that sat in front of John's desk. A feeling of melancholy and anger ran over him. Now, John wasn't a big fellow. In fact, Grant towered over him. He wore a three-piece suit and made sure his shoes were always shined. He wore skinny glasses that rested down at the very bottom of his nose, just enough that you didn't think he needed them at all, but still there to insinuate an intelligence, an eliteness, that needed to be assumed. 
His frame was short and stocky, but his voice was deep and reminiscent of every boy's father who could strike the fear of God in them. Now Grant, John began. We at the club have been examining the success and failures of the team in accordance with the club. You know how we feel about this team and about its players. How do you feel the season is progressing? Grant let the question marinate for a second so that he could collect his thoughts. He had to be perfectly articulate with his response. Well, sir, you see, Grant uttered, the boys are trying real hard. We have some good talent. This season can be a winning one, especially if we beat Allegheny today. Now that's what I like to hear, my boy, John said with elation. Grant was taken aback and not quite sure where the conversation would lead next. Before anything else was said, a few more high-ranking members of the club entered the room. Grant, John continued, we feel that this team, sponsored by this club and led by you, can accomplish great things. But in order to accomplish great things, we need to ensure that you are solely focused on winning with this club. I don't quite understand, sir, Grant questioned. Well, do you know how to write your name, son? John asked. Well, yes, sir. Yes, of course I do. Good, responded John. Then this process will be much easier. Grant, like I was saying, we want to ensure that you are dedicated to this club and to this team, and so we would like to offer you something that has never been offered in this sport. Like I said, this was not a day like every other day. I just want to play football, said Grant sheepishly. And football you will play, Mr. Dybert, but we want you to only play for the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. Those words may have been spoken before, but not with the weight of ink and paper residing in the same confines. Now, at this time, football was considered an amateur sport. Were there shady acquisitions going on? Of course there were. The year prior, William Pudge Heffelfinger became the first professionally paid football player after he was paid $500 by Allegheny to play one single game against Pittsburgh. But that was for a single game. This was different. What Grant Dybert was being offered was a contract, a piece of paper that branded Grant to the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. This piece of paper would have repercussions on the football community for the rest of time. Grant shuffled his feet, and then began tapping his foot like he was prepping for one of his signature juke moves. Before he could counter or respond, John gave a loud sigh, and then said something that would change the course of history. Grant, if you sign this, you will become the first person to ever sign a football contract. Grant didn't bring the boys by Ned's marketplace later that night. Instead, he went straight home. He took off his muddy shoes by the door, threw his shorts and shirt in the corner where they could easily be found to be washed. Then he hopped into that effervescent twin bed. With him in his hand was a check for $50. You see, the day was October 4th, and the year was 1893. Grant signed that contract, and by doing so, became the first contractually signed player in football history. Well, thanks for having a drink with the Don, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.